Well, it was late into the night. Jesus led His disciples to a familiar place. It was a place that they had often gone before to pray. It was the Garden of Gethsemane. And while they had been there before, this time felt oddly different. The account that you heard read earlier in Mark told us that Jesus was greatly distressed and troubled. Their teacher was visibly shaken. And Jesus, entering into the garden, told His disciples, why don't you all stay here? And Peter, James, and John, you come with Me. And they went deeper into the garden. And Jesus looked at Peter, James, and John and said to them, Keep watch, for My soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. And Peter may have looked at Jesus with a reassuring glance and held on to that sword that was hidden in his cloak as if to say, I've got this. I've got this. Jesus went a little bit further. And He fell to the ground and He began to cry out to the Lord, His Father. And He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for You. So take this cup from Me. Yet not My will, but Yours be done. That bread and that wine that they had enjoyed together just hours before were working against Peter, James, and John as they were attempting to keep watch. And their eyes began to get heavy. But Peter wasn't worried as he gripped that sword's hilt a little tighter. He was armed. Three times, three times, Jesus came back to find Peter, James, and John asleep. And He urged them, in the middle of His hour of suffering, His hour of temptation, He urged them to pray that they might not fall into temptation. He urged them to pray for He said, the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. After that third time, the garden exploded with commotion. The rumbling of footsteps. Hundreds of guards carrying torches and clubs and swords surrounded them. Immediately, to their shock and dismay, one of their own approached leading the band of warriors and guards. It was Judas. And he rushed up to Jesus and he mocked Him by saying, Rabbi, and then he kissed Him. And that was the sign. The guards surrounded Jesus. They bound Him. They laid hands on Him. And in all the commotion, one could hear the the steely tones of a sword being removed from its sheath. And then a shriek overpowering the rest of the commotion in the garden. And they turned and they saw Malchus, the servant of the high priest, kneeling, holding the, the, the gaping, bleeding wound which once was his ear. And then all swords were drawn. All torches aimed at this commotion. All clubs were raised. And they saw Peter holding a bloody sword. 
And Jesus, with fire in his eyes, said, Peter, put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup my Father has given to me? I want you to open your Bibles tonight to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. And as you do so, I want you to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God as I read just the first part of verse 1. First Peter 4.1 Peter writes, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Let's pray. Father, we are dependent upon You to guide us in Your truth. And I'm dependent on You to lead me in truth as I declare it on Your behalf. And uh, Lord, I'm, I'm inadequate, but Your Word is not. <laughs> and so we pray that Your Word would speak through me tonight. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> now in this letter, Peter writes to the elect exiles of the dispersion. You can see that in chapter 1. In Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He writes to believers who had begun to feel what it meant to become followers of Jesus. He, he wrote to believers who were beginning to feel the weight and the significance of what being a follower of Jesus meant. You see, Becoming a follower of Jesus meant that it cost something. The people in their culture and in their society around them were beginning to turn against these Christ followers, these Christians, to the point that being a follower of Christ cost them something. To the point of being a follower of Christ hurt. To the point of being a follower of Christ meant being ostracized and dismissed from the society that they grew up in. To the point that being a follower of Jesus Christ meant real suffering. Real suffering. And Peter writes to the church, the elect exiles of the dispersion, with the encouraging words, teaching them that while they were facing persecution, while they were facing legitimate suffering, he wrote them to remind them that suffering inevitably leads to glory. He wrote them to encourage them, this isn't the end of the story. Glory awaits. So stay the course. Remain steadfast. Have faith. And he writes to a people who were tempted, just like he was in the garden, to arm themselves. right? To take matters into their own hands. To spit into the face of injustice. To fight back. Not to take this suffering, this injustice, this persecution. He wrote to those who, like him, just in the passage right after the, the garden passage, where, where Peter was in the courtyard of the high priest, and that young lady, the servant girl of the high priest, said, hey Peter, you're one of them, aren't you? What, is, what was Peter tempted to do in that moment? Oh no. <laughs> not me. I'm not one of them. I don't even know the man! Peter writes to people who were facing tri trials and, and suffering and were tempted, like he was in the courtyard of the high priest, tempted to deny the very one that rescued them. 
and to the elect exiles of the dispersion. I love that. He writes, chapter 4, verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. He says, since therefore, which in our minds should which should hearken back to something he's already written, so let's do that. In chapter 3, verse 18 is what he's referring to. He's, he's referring to the suffering of Christ. Look at 3.18 with me. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Christ suffered in the flesh. Therefore, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Peter exhorts the church, arm yourselves to suffer. Does that sound weird to you? (laughs) It should. It should. Uh, That's a far cry from what we see Peter doing in the garden, isn't it? Oh, he was armed all right. He was armed with a sword. He was armed with something with which to inflict pain and suffering. And that's exactly what he did on the servant of the high priest, Malchus, as he put a blow to his ear. Well, what strikes me is how different Peter is in 1 Peter than he was in the garden. What strikes me is how different this is to our natural way of thinking. Here's a question for you. What is your first thought when you hear the command to arm yourselves? What do you think of? I'll tell you what I think. This is probably, you know, you know what I think. I think, get a gun! (laughs) Right? Get a gun! Arm yourself! Put some armor on! Find some ammo! It's about to get real. The battle is upon us. That's what I think when I hear the command to arm yourselves. And yet... Peter is writing to encourage them that this is not a battle where we fight for comfort, where we fight to remove ourselves from suffering, but this is a battle that we're fighting to have faith in the midst of suffering. We're arming ourselves in the same way that Christ had thought. The Gospel has a way of reorienting. The Gospel has a way of changing things. And the path toward victory over sin and death, the path that Jesus walked was a path that included suffering. And He invites us, right? Take up our cross and to follow after Him. He invites us and commands whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. Jesus suffered in the flesh. Chapter 3, verse 18 says, Therefore, one says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Peter uses this, this warlike imagery, this battle-like imagery, because it's a battle that we're facing. That battle is to believe in the midst of suffering. So he exhorts the church, prepare your minds to suffer. Create, embrace this mindset, this mindset of Christ, like a soldier preparing for battle, prepare to suffer. Like a soldier preparing for battle, know that your path in this battle will be one of suffering. Train your mind to think the way Jesus thought. Remember with His words in the garden, not my will, 
but yours be done. You know, if we're students of the Bible, this should not be a, a foreign concept, even though it's a foreign way of, of our thinking naturally, right? We don't, we don't often embrace the way Peter is call, calling us to think here. We don't embrace the way he's calling us to train our minds to think uh, towards suffering, to prepare to suffer. What do we want to do naturally? Remove ourselves from suffering in every regard. And we want to listen to people who promise us that suffering's not in the equation for Christians. If you all remember Cecil Bean. Remember Cecil? Great old saint. I'll never forget what he, he told me one time. I went over to visit him at his house and he's got kind of a high voice. He said, Pastor Nate. That's, that's really how, how high. I won't keep going with that. But he said, Pastor Nate. <laughs> Pastor Nate. I was, uh, I'll, I'll go back down normal here. I was, I was watching TV and I was listening to a preacher and he was preaching, but he wasn't preaching. And I knew exactly what he was talking about. Uh, this preacher was telling people what they wanted to hear, but it wasn't a message that aligned itself with the Word of God. And all students of the Word of God understand that suffering is indeed part of the equation for the Christian life. Paul writes to the church in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also what? Suffer for His name's sake. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not will be comfortable. Not will be wealthy. Will be persecuted. John 16.33 John Candler just read it earlier. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, says, Since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Prepare to suffer. This is uh, such a radical command. It's so upside down. It's so foreign to the way we naturally think. And so, because it's so foreign, Peter spends the next few verses describing to the church precisely what arming yourselves in the same way of thinking looks like. And the first thing we see is that one armed to suffer is surrendered to the will of God. One armed to suffer is surrendered to the will of God. Let's look together at verses 1 and 2 in chapter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. It's a fascinating statement Peter makes there. He says that whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What in the world does that mean? Now some of you in here have suffered in the flesh for the sake of Christ. You still struggle with sin? Yeah. Experience would tell us that he's not saying that after suffering in the flesh for the sake of Christ, one is sinless and perfect. That's not exactly at all what he's saying. Uh, Pastor David, I'm sure I wasn't here this morning, but, and I missed it dearly hearing Romans 8 preached. But we heard that uh, we all, along with creation, eagerly await a time where our, our sinful fleshly bodies are glorified. And become sinless. John writes uh, to the church in 1 John chapter 3 that there's coming a day when we will see Him face to face and then we'll be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. That sinless perfection is coming. 
That day when we will cease ultimately from sin is coming. So what in the world is Peter saying when one who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin? Peter here is offering encouragement to those who are in the midst of suffering. And he's saying that suffering for the sake of Christ is evidence that the believer has left a life of sin and is no longer under its bondage. Not to say that he will never sin again, but that he's saying that he is living for something greater. He's saying, in essence, you're suffering? Excellent. You're on the right path. You're doing it right. Uh, The suffering believer has put sin behind him. His former life is a thing of the past. The suffering he now feels is evidence. It's a testimony that one is united by faith to Christ. He has died with Christ. He lives and breathes and walks in Christ. Sin no longer has dominion on him since it was crucified with Christ. The life he now lives, he lives to God. And he describes this even further in verse 2. He says, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The believer who has armed himself with the same thinking as Christ, that is to arm to prepare to suffer, is a believer surrendered to the will of God. He's no longer a slave to his human fleshly sinful passions, His desire is completely different. His desire is now to do the will of God. I imagine as Peter writes this, he has in his mind uh, that garden scene. We heard it read. We heard it told. uh, That whole scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. A scene which included swords and slumber and suffering and sobs as Jesus cried out, Abba, Father, All things are possible for you. Take this cup from me. And here it is. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Our Christ was surrendered to the will of the Father. And as you prepare to suffer, as you arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, that's what our prayer needs to be as well. Not my will, but yours be done. And uh, you know we need to be honest here. This is a battle. Okay? This is something that we fight on an hourly, a minute by minute basis, surrendering to the will of God rather than uh, succumbing to our own fleshly passions. And uh, Peter witnessed it firsthand in the garden, didn't he? He saw this battle going on. Paul writes of the battle in Galatians. He says, "Your your flesh is constantly at war with the spirit." Right? And in the garden, Jesus was battling. His, his flesh did not want to drink the cup that He was about to drink. So He asked God the Father and said, Father, take this cup from Me. But His spirit was willing. His flesh was weak. And He said, yet not My will, but Yours be done. I don't want this, but I want what You want more. So Peter's exhortation to the church is to arm yourself with the same way of thinking. That is to arm yourselves to suffer. And the first step toward arming yourselves to suffer is to surrender to the will of God. Secondly, as we arm ourselves to suffer, Peter calls us to be through with sin. Enough with sin. Look at verse 3, the first part of verse 3. For 
the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. You see that? Enough! (laughs) You've had enough! Be done with it. You're no longer a slave to sin. Your fleshly passions like the Gentiles are, are past you. What is done is in the past. You don't need to add to it. So put those sinful passions away and leave them behind. By the way, Peter does this by reminding them of their new identity in Christ. He calls them Gentiles. Guess what they were? Gentiles. They're at the elect. They're the elect exiles of the dispersion from where? Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. They're in the Greco-Roman world. They're most likely primarily Gentiles. And he says, put away that old life, that old life of the Gentiles. I wonder if they were reading this and scratching their head. Wait a minute. Aren't we Gentiles? And he reminds them already in chapter 2, verse 9. You can look at it because it's so good. You aren't a Gentile anymore. You're a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for your, His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As God's chosen race, as God's holy nation, that past sin is just that. It's no longer part of your identity. So leave it behind. I love, I love Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. You know that sin that so easily entangles us? What does it say? Cast it off. Get rid of it. It's not a part of your life anymore. These sins that they were tempted to uh, are sins that, that, we were te- that we are tempted to do and to partake in as well. Let's read chapter three, or 4, verses 3 and 4 to, uh, together. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. I think a little bit of context is in order here. Peter writes to those elect exiles of the dispersion all over the Greco-Roman world. And it's important to remember that the sins that are listed here in verse 3 are very much a part of the social fabric, the social structure that these believers found themselves in. Uh, To be a part of this society meant that they were expected to partake in these kinds of sins because the culture was built around these festivals, these times of veneration of gods and emperors. and, And guess what? Those festivals included... Verse 3, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Uh, It's no wonder these believers were maligned for not partaking because not only were they not partaking in the sins that are listed, they were not partaking in the social structure that everyone was expected to take part in. They weren't rightly celebrating the festivals. They weren't rightly venerating the emperor. And that didn't fly well with society. It's, it's equivalent to, to, uh, to, well, we just celebrated Veterans Day, to stepping on the flag on Veterans Day. It's something that just would not fly. And rightly so, <laughs> in, in that case. But uh, it, 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 it's something that they were ostracized for, maligned for. Um, 
for the way that they remove themselves from this sin. So the temptation, I just note, just, just think with me about the temptation they felt. Not only are they tempted to, to join in the sins, you know, it looks fun, looks appealing, but they were, I think, more so attempted to, to kind of fade back into a, a life that they once knew, right? A life that they were once accepted in. They wanted to hang out with their family members on the festival days. They wanted to take part with their friends and all the fun that everyone else was having. And to do to not do so meant to, to be to, to willingly choose to be maligned, to be scorned, to be ostracized. It cost them something not to be a part of those those sinful acts mentioned in verse three. Have you all been there before? Maybe uh, you know, we, we don't live in the Greco-Roman world, but we, we face some similar things. I'll give you an example. And uh, you know, I really hope my grandma doesn't listen to this someday because I'm going to talk about my grandma. I love my grandma. Grandma, if you listen to this, I love you. Um, my grandma is a sweet Christian lady. She is the sweetest. She's full of joy. She is a, a, a sparkling light. And uh, if you knew her, you'd know what I mean. But um, my grandpa died when I was a kid, and she was you know, alone for years. And my grandma found this man that she grew to love. And uh, he was a good man. You know? And uh, she, she decided this was a man that she wanted to spend the rest of her life with. And so she got to thinking, I should just marry him because I want to, you know, we want to, you know, I want to sell my condo in Florida and I want to move in with him. And, and to do so, I just don't feel right in my conscience to do so without first getting married, right? And which is a good desire, you know, get married and, and do that. And so she began to research what that meant. And that would mean some, some sacrifice on her part because her, her deceased husband uh, was a part of the Air Force and he had all kinds of benefits. Fits that that uh, that went over to her for the rest of her life, and to to become the dependent of another would mean to cease those benefits, and uh, it was going to mean something. It was going to cost her something financially, and uh, so she thought, well, I can get married without not getting married. It doesn't make any y'all shaking your head. Absolutely, uh, we can get married but not legally married. We can be recognized by our friends and families being married, but the state will not recognize that marriage because we won't get a license. You know, we'll just kind of tuck this away and everything will be fine. And my dear grandma, my grandma, she said, Nate, will you do this ceremony for us? Now, what do you think I said? I said, Grandma, I love you. I love you so much, but I can't do this for you. It's not right. And uh, my grandma knew it wasn't right. You know, she was, she was understanding, but guess who wasn't understanding? My family, right? You want to talk about some, uh, some, some hateful words spoken <laughs> behind closed doors. Um, I, you know, it was a, it was a choice that, that, that cost something. And... Guys, that's nothing compared to what some of you are dealing with. I understand some of you are dealing with, with invitations to uh, the, the family member who's a homosexual. right? Will you come to my wedding? And what do you say? I can't rightly do this because I don't 
I don't believe that that's God's intended purpose for marriage. It's not a biblical definition of marriage. Yeah, it's legal in our culture, but it's not right. And what happens? Your family ostracizes you. Your family puts their noses up at you, says hateful things, and begins to treat you as not a family member. This is what's going on here. Uh, these festivals, these, these cultural gatherings uh, were times in which they all enjoyed the, the passing pleasures of sin. And these believers were faced with the tough decision uh, to not partake. To, to choose to be maligned. <clears throat> Surrendering to the will of God and leaving past sins in the past costs you something. And many, kind, many times that cost comes by way of suffering. It comes by way of uh, receiving contempt and scorn and maligning and being ostracized. Uh, but Peter doesn't stop his instruction, his exhortation there. He wants to make sure that those believers understand this is not the end of the matter. So, so Peter exhorts the church, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Surrender to the will of God. Have enough with the sin of the past. And number three, death is not the final word. Death is not the final word. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. But they, speaking of those who are uh, diving into the flood of debauchery and maligning you, they will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the Gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Peter simply reminds the church that death is not the last word. Judgment awaits. And the judgment for the believer is far different than the judgment for the unbeliever. It has a far different conclusion than the judgment for an unbeliever. Verse 5 reminds us that theirs, theirs is coming. Right? Their judgment is coming. Uh, just imagine, and you, these are some of the same things that we hear today, just imagine what they were saying. These maligners are saying, hey, you die too. Right? Yours is the same end as ours. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Right? So join in with us. You only live once. Come on. You only live once. Join in with us. You're dying out too. But Peter reminds the church, death is not the end. We live now for what awaits after death. And for the unbeliever, there remains judgment, a second death. But for the believer, there is, a li- there is life in the Spirit with God. And so Peter is encouraging the church, yeah, arm yourselves to suffer. Surrender to the will of God. Have enough to do with the sin of your past. And remember, you're living now for that future. Death is not the final word. Life in Christ is. Live now for that end. Pastor David laughed at me when I told him I was preaching this text because verse 6 is one of the hardest texts in, in all of uh, the New Testament to translate and, and to interpret. And, and uh, I'm going to keep it super simple because I'm super simple. Uh, it says in verse 6, For this is why the Gospel was preached even to those who are dead. 
that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. At first glance, we can get hung up on this. What is, what is Peter saying? Is, is he saying there's a second chance for people who have died? And there's the Gospel is preached to them after having died, and now they're coming to life, they're coming to saving faith in Christ after they've died? At first glance, that might be what you would draw as a conclusion, but that's not what Peter's saying, right? Nowhere in the New Testament, nowhere in the Bible does it uh, declare such a thing. And uh, let me just, just real, real simply put this. Peter is reminding the church that though some believers had already died in faith and thus experienced the judgment common to all men, which is death, they are even now alive in the Spirit. The, 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 the tenses on these verbs are key for us. Verse 6, For this is why the Gospel was preached. It was preached to them while they were alive, even though those who are presently dead, that, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. What he's doing is he's encouraging the church. Those people, those people that, uh, that those maligners are talking about, those that have already gone before, those that have already died, Mm, their judgment, uh, their fate is not the same as, as those maligners will be. Their fate is the same as, as what Peter reminds the church in, in chapter 3, verse 18, about how Christ was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. That's our hope. We hope for something uh, that goes beyond death. We hope for life eternal with Christ. Uh, it's like Paul saying, you know, death, where is your sting? You know, Peter's saying, hey, these, uh, these folks who have gone before, though judged in the flesh, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. It's an encouragement. Uh, it is appointed once for man, and then to die, and then the judgment. And uh, the, the judgment that faces those that are, have faith in Christ is one of joy and reward. <clears throat> Peter says, arm yourselves to suffer. Sure, we're going to suffer as those who are those that that have faith in Christ, but we do so surrendering to the will of God, right? We do we do so as those who have had enough with the former way of sin, and we do those as those who live knowing that death is not the end. I regret that I wasn't here this morning. I'm going to have to go back and listen to that message in Romans eight. I think it's. This is kind of a fitting follow-up to what Pastor, I'm sure, preached in Romans 8. The fact that uh, Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Mm. It's a timely message. Uh, there are a lot of people in the church that are suffering right now. And uh, you know, Paul writes to the church at Corinthians, the church at Corinth in chapter 12, you know, as one member of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. Every member suffers. And, uh, and I, as I close tonight, I just want to encourage you, Jesus suffered so that we could too. Uh, let's, let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to draw some conclusions here with our three points in the way that Jesus fulfills them. Hebrews chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 9 through 18. Just listen. But we see him 
who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that He for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, and that is why He is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in Him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that He helps, But He helps the offspring of Abraham. And therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Remember who Peter is writing to. He's writing to those elect exiles of the dispersion who are undergoing temptation Temptation to arm themselves with a sword and fight back, or temptation to slide back into a way of life that'd be far more comfortable. And Peter write, and, and the author of Hebrew writes, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus suffered perfectly. And because He suffered perfectly, He is able perfectly to identify with us those whom He is not ashamed to call brothers. Mm. He was tempted every way like as we are, yet without sin. And, and, and often, we, we kind of minimize the way we think of Christ's temptations as those having to do with that scene right after His baptism. Remember after Jesus' baptism, after the Spirit descends on Him as a dove and the Spirit drives Him out, leads Him out into the desert, and He fasts for 40 days, and who comes along in the desert? The serpent. It's like a, it's like a repeat of the scene in Genesis chapter 3. Who slithers into the garden? The serpent. And uh, Jesus wards off the, the attempts of the serpent to have Him... Um, forego the suffering that the Father had intended, the will of the Father. Uh, We we often relegate the the temptation of Christ to that scene and we fail to remember that that He was tempted in every way like as we are for the entire time that He was with us. And we we fail to remember that there was another garden scene, right? We, 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 We heard it read earlier. There was another garden scene in which Jesus was wrestling. His flesh was weak but his spirit was willing, and he was wrestling with this desire not to drink the cup of the wrath of God. It was something that his, in his flesh he did not want to do. He cried out, take, take this cup from me, Father. Take it. And yet not my will, but yours be done. And so we have our suffering servant 
who defeated the temptation, unlike the first Adam, right? Unlike Adam in the garden, and unlike Peter in the garden of Gethsemane, who took matters into their own hands, who listened to another voice altogether, Jesus surrendered to the voice of the Father, surrendered to the will of the Father, and chose instead of comfort, a path of suffering. Okay? And this Jesus, our, our second Adam, was bound. He was tried. He was, he was silent as a sheep before His shearers are silent. He opened not His mouth to His accusers. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was spit upon. He was clubbed in the head. He was slapped. He was scourged. I can't, I can't imagine the temptation that he must have felt to put an end to that injustice at that very moment. You know, unjust this is. He's the Creator. He's the Creator of the universe and the creatures are mocking Him as if He's not. With a word, He could have chosen a different path. And yet, for the sake of doing the will of the Father, for the sake of loving those who would become His brothers, He remained silent. And He was nailed to a cross. And with His last breath on that cross, He cried out, it is finished. A declaration that that sins have been paid for in full. And Peter writes to the church, enough with the sin! Right? It's been paid for in full. It's enough. It's past. It shall not be added to. That sin has been paid for. So walk in the resurrected life that Christ offers. Jesus was surrendered to the will of the Father. He dealt with our sin to the point where we could say, yeah, it's paid for in full. Enough with it. And He suffered because of the joy that was set before Him. You know, he went to the cross knowing that the cross and the subsequent grave was not the end of the story. Amen? He went to the cross uh, for the joy that was set before him. And, and the end of the story is not a filled tomb, it's an empty tomb. And having paid for our sins completely, the grave could not hold him. There was no price for sin left to be paid. The grave couldn't hold him. And so he was given new life. He is alive. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's enjoying presently the joy that was set before Him. Having endured the cross. Having despised the shame. And He sits as our champion. He sits as our finish line in this path of suffering that as we too surrender to the will of God, as we too say enough of the sin, And as we too keep in our minds and walk in a way that says death is not the final word, we march on having armed ourselves to suffer. Having armed ourselves with the same mind as that of Christ for the joy set before us. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Peter, put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup my Father has given me? It's time that we put away our arms and instead arm ourselves to suffer. Let's pray.